Ladies and gentlemen, what I'm about to share with you guys is hot off the press, and this is one of the most explosive stories on election fraud that's occurred in the last year. What we have is clear, definitive proof of machine manipulation by the Dominion machines in DeKalb County, Georgia. Now, we'll get to the details of that in just a second, but I want to give you guys some context here to explain why this is so explosive. The timing of this could not be more perfect. Just last week on Saturday, CNN and the Washington Post came out and admitted that the Dominion machines, specifically the ImageCast X Dominion machines used in the state of Georgia, have several vulnerabilities that could allow for malware to switch votes. Now, I think I know exactly why they admitted this, and I did an entire substack on this exact subject, which I'll leave a link to in the description. CNN said that their source for this information about the Dominion machines came from CISA, and CISA has a five-page advisory report that they're going to be releasing this week. Okay, so let's get this straight. CISA, the same agency which said this was the safest, most secure election in American history, is about to release a report telling us that there's vulnerabilities in the ImageCast X machines, but there's no evidence that these vulnerabilities have ever been exploited. And here's why CISA is doing this. CISA is trying to control the narrative before the Halderman report gets released. Now, if you don't know what the Halderman report is, there was a lawsuit that was filed in Georgia claiming that the Dominion machines that are used are unconstitutional, right? So the judge actually allowed an expert to come in and examine those machines, and that was Dr. J. Alex Halderman. Halderman came out and publicly stated that he found multiple severe security flaws in the ImageCast X machines that would allow bad actors to install malicious software and change votes. And here's why. The ImageCast X machines, you make your selections on a touch screen, and then it prints out a piece of paper, right? And so the idea is that you have a paper ballot backup. However, those ballots are fed through a machine to be tabulated. And what the machine actually reads is a QR code. It doesn't actually read your selections. It reads a QR code. So basically, if a bad actor wanted to, they could install malicious software and that QR code would read something different than what the voter actually selected on the touchscreen. Now, after Halderman completed his report, CISA then came in and asked the judge to keep this report under seal temporarily. They told the judge that basically, if the Halderman report gets out there to the public, then bad actors could see all these vulnerabilities in the machines, and we can't have that. That would severely undermine election security. So please, keep this under seal until we do our own report. And after four long months, CISA is finally done writing their five-page review. They've drafted an official response to the Halderman report, which is going to be released next week. But before it comes out, they've decided to leak it to CNN and the Washington Post to give the media a chance to spin their propaganda. And so that is why CNN and the Washington Post are saying, yes, there's vulnerabilities in the Dominion machines, but there's no evidence that it's ever been exploited in an election. They're trying to lay the groundwork and control the narrative by saying this has never been exploited in an election and boom right on time this story comes out of DeKalb County which absolutely destroys that narrative this is the most definitive explosive proof of machine manipulation using these exact same image cast machines that we've ever seen okay so we've laid the groundwork on why this story is so important now let's get to the actual story and explain what I'm talking about so in DeKalb County Georgia on May 24th there was a local county commissioner race in District 2 
and the end result showed Lauren Alexander received 34.67% of the vote, Marshall Orson receiving 41.35% of the vote, and Michelle Long Spears receiving 23.98% of the vote. So in Georgia, you know, if you don't get 50%, then you go to a runoff. So Michelle Long Spears was cut out of the race, and the two runoff candidates are Marshall Orson and Lauren Alexander. Now, Michelle Long Spears noticed something very strange about these election results. She went around to different precincts in the district and noticed that some of the precincts, she didn't receive a single vote, including her own precinct where she and her husband voted for herself. Now think about that. How is it possible that a candidate who allegedly received 24% of the vote uh, finds precincts where she didn't receive a single vote? Obviously, that's impossible. So then she made complaints and demanded a hand recount of the results. So just yesterday, they released the hand count totals. And the difference between the machine count official results and the hand count totals are so bad that it changes the actual outcome of the election. So here's two screenshots comparing the difference between the Dominion machine totals reported on May 24th and the hand count totals reported on June 1st. After the hand count, Lauren Alexander gained 355 votes, Orson lost 1,298 votes, Spears actually gained 3,620 votes, making her the new runoff candidate. And here's the best part. When you add them all up, the hand count shows 2,810 votes more than the Dominion machines reported on May 24th. This is absolutely huge, guys. This is a discrepancy in the thousands in a local county commissioner race. And so far, they've offered no explanation as to why this happened. What does that say about all the other races that were conducted on these very same machines? And what does this do to the narrative that, yes, there's vulnerabilities on the machines, but this has never been exploited in an election? If you ask me, with all of this coming out at the same time, this is the most leverage we've ever had at banning the Dominion machines, destroying the narrative, and opening Pandora's box and looking at other races. And that's why this has to get out there to the masses. I'm asking you guys to share this video all over the place and put this in your elected officials' faces. We all know that Brian Kemp did not receive 72% of the vote in Georgia. So guys, let's work together and get on this while we have the momentum. The people of Georgia have to get on the phone with their elected officials and demand answers and accountability. This does not make sense, and there's no way they're getting away with this one. So again, guys, do me a favor and share this video. Also, smash that like button, subscribe to this channel, and consider supporting on Locals at nickmoseeder.locals.com, as well as the Substack, which I'll leave a link to in the description, nickmoseeder.substack.com. Anyways, thanks for watching, and I will see you next time. Second hour of the Jesse Kelly Show, and joining me now is somebody who's been made quite famous on this show in the past couple days. <laughs> We've been playing her a lot. Thought it would be best to bring the expert in so I can ask her questions because I know we all have a lot of them. This is Dr. Naomi Wolf. She's the author of the book you really should be picking up right now, The Bodies of Others. You can also get her information at dailyclout.io. Dr. Wolf. Pfizer documents, first and foremost, why are we in possession of any Pfizer documents? How, how'd that happen? Uh, great question. So um, a group called 
openthebooks.com, and an activist named Aaron Siri uh, had a successful lawsuit to, you know, get the Pfizer documents, um, and a court ordered that they indeed be released. And the FDA had requested of that court that the documents be kept secret for 75 years till we're all long gone. And um, and the court declined to do that. And uh, now that I've seen the Pfizer documents, I know why the FDA was trying to keep these documents hidden. There are 55,000 internal documents that really demonstrate that there's been a massive crime against humanity committed by Pfizer and abetted by the FDA. Um, and the reason I know what's in them is not that I'm a medical doctor, I'm not, but 3,000 volunteers from uh, a call out on the War Room, Steve Bannon's podcast, and my own Daily Clout um, convened, and their experts, their uh, physicians and RNs and biostatisticians, uh, lab clinicians, medical fraud investigators, um, research scientists, and they're reading through the documents, and they've issued 23 reports now so that anyone can understand what's in them, and horrific headlines are emerging, um, Doctor, and, and that's how we know. And I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm going to do this a couple of times throughout, though. Just I, I just want to get some clarification on things. Before we go into the, the meat of everything, would you explain to people that you are, in fact, not some bloodthirsty right-winger with an agenda here, are you? That's not your background. <laughs> I'm far from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm... Uh, I'm a, I guess I'm a lifelong uh, traditional liberal, mm-hmm. and I was a, an advisor to uh, Vice President Gore and to the Clinton re-election campaign, and mm-hmm. yeah, I've been a lifelong Democrat. Um, I'm an independent now because of what I've seen, but, mm-hmm. but I, yes, I'm, I, I talk to conservatives. I have friends who are conservatives, but I'm not a, a right-winger. Okay. No, obviously I wasn't trying to call you out. I just wanted to make sure everyone understood this isn't me talking here. This is this is this is Dr. Naomi Wolf talking. All right. Now, I want to focus first because it, frankly it was the part that shocked me the most about the babies. You referenced several times and I've played the interview in its entirety on this show, on this show, but you've referenced a baby die off. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. So, uh, basically to to move backwards, um, an Israeli journalist named Itana Hecht has looked at signals from three countries, Scotland, Canada, and Israel, and found elevated levels of neonatal deaths, uh, spontaneous abortions, or miscarriages among vaccinated women compared with unvaccinated in Israel. Um, that's up 34% for vaccinated mothers. In Scotland, there's double the usual number of neonatal deaths, newborn deaths, in 2021 when almost all of Scotland was vaccinated. And in Ontario, Canada, a doctor has come forward and said that there were 86 newborn deaths um, in a three-month period, whereas the baseline is usually five or six. And so she's identifying those signals. Um, I you know, and in reading the Pfizer reports about babies, the volunteer reports about babies and and breastfeeding, um, understand that there are uh, possible causes of these newborn deaths and additional dead babies. There's no better way to say it, and uh, like toxic problems with lactation in revealed in the Pfizer documents. 
Okay, now explain. I, I don't understand because I'm certainly certainly not at your level of intelligence or education. I don't understand how something that was supposed to be a vaccine could hurt babies. Can you can you merge that world for me? I was told this was a vaccine that would keep me from getting sick. That's what I was told. And now you're telling me, or I, I shouldn't say you, Pfizer documents are telling me it's killing babies. How does that happen? Well, the Pfizer documents are showing that babies are dying, right? So let me move back um, and explain. And, you know, I, I thank you for the compliment, but any, anyone, you know, from, from any background can, can understand um, what I'm about to explain. Um, and you can also, the, the, the reports the volunteers did, I deliberately trained them to speak English. <laughs> so they are explaining what's in the documents in just ordinary language that anyone should be able to understand. And um, they link to the actual documents. These are all on dailycloud.io. So basically, you were lied to. Um, the the mRNA injections, they're not traditional vaccines, right? Traditional vaccines are like a little bit of the thing that could make you sick, and that triggers an immune response. That's what, not what these are. Um, these are injections, and they, they're made of um, active ingredients that include lipid nanoparticles, which are hard, fatty casings, tiny, hard, fatty casings that contain mRNA, messenger RNA, and, um, and also spike protein. Uh, and they also contain something called polyethylene glycol, which is a petroleum derivative. So, um, can I pause you real quick? I'm sorry. I'm sure. sorry to pause you, but I keep hearing this word spike protein, and I have no earthly idea what that means. What's spike protein? Well, I, I want to stick to explaining what I know I can explain Okay, okay well. go ahead, go ahead. So, okay, go ahead. so I'll, I'll move on, except to say that the spike protein, it, it's the same thing that's in the COVID virus that makes it damaging. It's it, it the same thing. The spike protein that's in the okay. COVID virus that okay. causes symptoms is also in the vaccine, right? Okay. So it's one of the active ingredients in the vaccine. And what our researchers and other studies have found is that there's toxicity to the spike protein. Okay. So the point is you were told that um, the, these materials stay in the deltoid, in the injection site, but they don't. The Pfizer documents show that within 48 hours, they go into your bloodstream, and then they lodge in your spleen, adrenals, lymph nodes, uh, liver, and if you're a woman, in your ovaries. Okay, so let's move on and understand what happened to babies. Um Women were told categorically by Rochelle Walensky, by the New York Times, by the head of the FDA, these are safe and effective for pregnant women. They can't even touch your baby. They can't cross the placenta. Well, that was a lie. Um, what we found was that pregnant women were excluded from the trial. So no human pregnant women uh, were, were tested with, with these injections. So the claim that they were safe and effective for pregnant women and human babies was based on a study of 44 French rats who were followed for 42 days. Uh, the rat mothers were not even allowed to give birth to see if the babies were okay, reacting normally, you know, growing normally. Um, the scientists um, autopsied the 42 fetal rats and decided they were fine and declared that the vaccines were safe for human women. And the scientists and doctors who ran that study were shareholders and employees of Pfizer and the subsidiary BioNTech, which makes the vaccines. Uh, let me move on. Um, so 
So in, in spite of pregnant women being excluded from the trials, uh, 270 of them got pregnant anyway after having been vaccinated with mRNA injections. And of the 270 pregnant women, 234 of them, the records were lost. So that's illegal. Pfizer is supposed to follow them. The FDA is supposed to follow them and their babies to see that they're okay. The, the records are just gone. It says no known outcome. Of the 34 pregnant women who were vaccinated and gave birth in the Pfizer documents, 28 of them lost their babies. Good grief. Okay, I'm you know what? I'm, 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 I'm actually I'm going to pause you there. If, if it's okay with you, can I keep you on for one more segment? I just have a couple other questions sure. I want to get clarification on. Okay, we will be back Absolutely. in just a minute with Dr. Naomi Wolf. She has been kind enough to join us tonight and explain these things. I have questions. I know you have questions. We'll be back, and we'll talk to Dr. Naomi Wolf about that. It is the Jesse Kelly Show. Chris, I think bad medicine might have been a little too on the nose. Huh? Come on. Now, all right. Anyway, joining me now still is Dr. Naomi Wolf, author of the book, The Bodies of Others. She's the one going through the Pfizer documents. Doctor, you mentioned you mentioned that the scientists who did the, the, the test on the rats, they were actually part of Pfizer. Is that, and look, forgive my ignorance here, is that the norm? Do these pharmaceutical companies normally farm out the testing to people who owe them? Uh, <laughs> great question. I mean, they're not supposed to, right? But there's a loophole, which is, you know, there's this tiny little disclosure line for conflicts of interest at the end of the article. And if you disclose your conflict, yes, you can go ahead and, and do it. It's it's not considered okay. Um, and that's the whole point about, you know, these documents being hidden is that uh, even if that's the loophole that, um, you know, Pfizer uses or that these scientists use, uh, public opinion would not be okay with it because it's an obvious conflict of interest. Good grief. Okay, doctor. And I have to ask, I know y'all are still on this and you've got a lot of stuff still to go through and I get that, but everyone's making fun of the headline out here today. Hello? Uh Doctor, you got me? Yeah, I now hear you. Sorry. Uh, anyway, I, I know you all have a lot of documents to go through still, and, and maybe you haven't gotten anything like this, but you were mentioning where this particle was going, and you mentioned it was going to yeah. the, the uterus of the women and whatnot. We're seeing yeah. a lot, a lot of young people out here having some really significant health problems as far as liver and heart and things like that. There's an article out today about the, the sudden deaths of young people. They even have a syndrome for it now. I don't want to be conspiracy theory guy. You're the expert looking through the documents. Is there something in those documents that would indicate that thing is doing this? Yes. Let me just cut to the chase and say yes. This is a, a massive crime. I mean, I've concluded from looking at the extent of harms in the Pfizer documents, I've concluded that this is a, a national security breach um, because there's no way, you know, I've worked in a White House or rather I've worked as a, an advisor for, uh, you know, president and vice president. There's no way the FDA would let this amount of harm take place and deaths. Four people died the day they were injected. 1,200 people died in the first three months of the Pfizer rollout. Um, you know, one of the levels of uh, micrograms of ingredients in 
Darren are so high, 100 micrograms, more than three times that of Pfizer, that internally they said, this is too high, it's dangerous, and they dropped it, but they didn't tell us, right? They knew that, that um, you know, a week after being injected with the mRNA vaccine, that minors had heart damage. They knew that in May, they gave the EUA anyway, allowing it for minors June of 2021. It wasn't until August that a government press release went out warning parents of myocarditis or heart damage. So, you know, to answer your question, yes, one of the shocking things in the Pfizer documents are these columns of adverse events. They look meaning bad things that happen to people. They don't get anything like the, you know, side effects listed on the web. CDC says, oh, you might, like what you were told, you might have some chills, you might have some fever, you might have some fatigue, um, you might have a headache. But, but in the Pfizer documents, there are thousands of heart attack-related events cardiac events, uh, um, tachycarditis, which is, um, you know, like heart fluttering, uh, damage to aortas. There's thousands of um, clotting events, uh, thrombotic events, like, you know, clots in lungs, clots in legs, clots in brains, strokes, hemorrhages. There's so much joint pain, which is something you never hear about. I know people who are, like, limping, you know, young, healthy people after getting joint pain, like rheumatoid arthritis. There's encephaly. There's, um, there's, there's muscle pain, myalgia. Again, you don't hear about this. I know two people who have no quality of life now because their muscles hurt all the time after they got injected. Um, and, you know, menstrual dysregulation, I, I got deplatformed from Twitter a year ago warning that young health women were reporting problems with their menstrual cycles, like two periods in a, you know, 30-day cycle or, um, you know, long postmenopausal women bleeding again or hemorrhaging blood clots. I'm sorry to be gross, but we have to talk about this, not just for women's sake, but for the sake of babies and healthy reproduction. Well, if you understand the structure of these injections and some of the toxicity of, of what's in them, you, you do understand what's happening because these tiny lipid nanoparticles are zooming through your bloodstream and through all of your organs, right? Of course, there's going to be damage. You know, women were told that, um, that the, the vaccines don't cross the placenta, but Pfizer knew that lipid nanoparticles are designed to cross human membranes, right? They're designed to cross the blood-brain barrier, uh, so they also cross the placenta. So these tiny little hard fatty things are going into the fetal environment. I, um, I mentioned polyethylene glycol. It's an allergen. Oh, it's, made, it's a petroleum byproduct. It's in the vaccines. You're not supposed to ingest it. You know, it's in white strips. It's in antifreeze, right? It's a petroleum product. So this is in your system. The Pfizer documents show they knew it was an allergen. It's a t- very dangerous allergen for people with an allergy. They can die of shock. And, you know, the internet has tickets of people with red welts all over their bodies and they're like this. Well, the Pfizer documents show that they knew what it was. It's a, it's a reaction to polyethylene glycol. So mm. back to babies, um, polyethylene glycol, glycol is showing up in breast milk. And babies are, one baby in the Pfizer documents was distressed, had gastrointestinal distress, uh, was inconsolable, agitated, sleepless. That baby's died. And, and when they autopsied the baby, they found it had liver inflammation. So a study in the NIH shows that there are trace amounts of polyethylene glycol now in the breast milk of breastfeeding vaccinated women, and that babies are, are having this reaction of sleeplessness, GI distress, 
um, agitation. The study only followed the babies for two weeks. We don't even know if they're gaining weight normally. And the study said, well, it's trace amount. But, you know, how much is a trace amount if you're a tiny newborn baby with no immunities and this is your only food and, uh, and it's got a petroleum product in it, right? Doctor, so, um, yes. I am sorry we are officially up against the break. I am out of time. I, I, I cannot thank you enough for elaborating on this and explaining it in a way people can understand. This sounds awful. Her book is The Bodies of Others. Dr. Naomi Wolf, thank you so much, ma'am. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Takes your breath away, right? Shocking stuff. Uh, shocking stuff. And the criminality of knowingly doing that. Knowingly doing that. It's beyond belief. But this is one of those things that's going to push us further apart as a society. It's one of these things that's going to take apart the country. Because as this stuff continues to come out more and more and more and more people wake up to what happened... Think of the level of distrust people are going to have for the institutions that they supposedly love. Hi, everybody. I'm Dennis Prager. One of my favorite people in the American media is Pete Hegseth. He's co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend, America's number one cable morning show. Talking about number one, his book, which is officially out tomorrow is already number one on Amazon. I need you to understand, as I was just saying off the air to Pete, what an achievement that is, because on Amazon, it means of every single book published. That means fiction, nonfiction, cookbooks, children's (laughs) books, erotic books. (laughs) I I don't know how much they're selling in that category these days. Anyway, it's a huge... It depends. <laughs> anyway, uh, the uh, the achievement is worthy because it's a very important book, Pete. The battle for its battle for the American mind, uprooting a century of miseducation. It is about what is happening in education, Pete. It's a delight to have you on the show. Always, thank you so much, Dennis. I appreciate it. You know, what? let me say this first and foremost. We, myself and my my co-author, David Goodwin, stand on the shoulders of you and what you do at Prager and what you have done to expose and what you have done to wake so many people up to the reality of not just higher education. Yes, we've all known. You'll notice the title of the book, Battle for the American Mind, very similar to Closing of the American Mind. Alan Bloom wrote that Mm -hmm. in 1987 about what was happening in higher education. Mm -hmm. We're not purporting to say ours is at the same level, but we're trying to do the same thing on K through 12. This is not a higher ed problem. This is a kindergarten problem, an elementary, middle school, high school problem. And the key to any recovery is understanding the depth of your problem. And that's why we spend uh, you know, seven chapters laying out the unauthorized history of American education and how the progressives over 100 years ago intentionally targeted the ingredients of our Judeo-Christian Western background because they knew they had to remove that in order to uh, advance their atheistic societal control, uh, which is ultimately manifesting today. So if you look at the lunacy of critical race theory and 1619 project and gender pronouns and it for six-year-olds, it seemed to happen so fast. But Hemingway once wrote, it happened gradually and then suddenly. And they've 
so consolidated their power in the classroom, they feel emboldened to come out for who they really are, which is cultural Marxists. And uh, we lay it all out in the book. That is a great summary of what you've done, and that's why it's so important, and I, I'm, I'm thrilled that it's number one. By the way, just as, as a side note, I'll be very curious if the New York Times lists your book as well. What do you think? You and me both. You and yeah. me both. I, hopefully we make it big enough that they can't uh, ignore it, and we're going to continue the blitz to get the word out. Yeah, things like that are nice. But I don't count on that. By the all, way, all I, care about uh, uh, I, I will fly to New York and buy you a cigar if the New York Times reviews your book. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be a goal? Well, you'd be a part of the reason they did if people uh, yeah. buy enough copies of Battle for the American Mind. I will take you up on that, <laughs> uh, Dennis, for sure. But I'll tell you, the reaction we've had so far is a, is a reflection of of the thirst that people have for an answer to the lunacy and what they can do about it. And frankly, our side of the aisle, except for people like you, your organization have largely ignored education as a key political issue. Even Donald Trump, and not until the end with the 1776 commission, it has been a it's been one of these, well, we're kind of for vouchers or school choice, and that's it. There's never been really a concerted attempt to expose what the left has done. And as a result, we, we're losing big time. Is John Dewey the big villain? He's one of them. Uh, obviously, he's the, the father of um, our, our progressive, not the public school system per se, but the progressive strain of our public school system. And how could he not be? He, he founded it. He wrote about it in the New Republic prolifically. He was at the education department at Columbia's Teachers College, the most prominent in the country. He was the founder of the American Federation of Teachers. He's the honorary life chair of the National Education Association, both of which went on to become the most powerful teachers unions in America. His atheist socialist footprint, he was a humanist ultimately, um, is all over the tr initial trajectory and experiments of how the early progressives tried to use school to create societal change. He, he studied um, what the suffragettes and the, the prohibitionists did in 1870 when they put third grade curriculum in anti-alcohol curriculum and saw how successful that was that 40 years later, it was a constitutional amendment to to uh, a prohibition in our constitution. They saw that the classroom was the key to societal change. So did John Dewey, but his work was picked up by critical theorists like Max Horkheimer and Herbert Mercusa of the Frankfurt School, who also landed at the Columbia Teachers College. Enter the unions, enter, I mean, you could go on and on, the Department of Education, enter Howard Zinn, enter um, Common Core. You need the whole timeline, once you put it together, and myself and the co-author did, it's not that one person had a grand conspiracy. It's that every aspect of that pipeline, they may not have known where it was going to end, but they knew where it wasn't going. And it wasn't going in the direction of our founding ideals. It wasn't going in the direction of our Judeo-Christian values. Uh, and they used whatever they needed to in the process to include a new pledge that didn't say under God, including uh, a flag in the front of the classroom as incremental steps of removing other values so they could get to the point where we are today where they're scrapping it all. And they're, they're pressing their advantage. I don't even know if there's an answer to this, but I still want to ask you, what animated these people? That's the key question. You know, and I've been asked this a few times. I ultimately believe when you dig down underneath the surface, these were all atheists. 
this is a religious battle ultimately um they were trying to they believe man was perfectible, that government could be the vehicle toward that. And and it comes down to not believing in original sin, not believing in our fallen nature, not believing that we were in redemption, not understanding human nature, which our founders understood when they set up a government meant to both restrain it and channel it. And if you believe that man is perfectible and you want to be the engine of that and use science to do so, the first thing you have to do is strip away uh, our fallen nature or the reflection that there is someone else, a higher power in charge. Now, political prerogatives of progressives, of Marxists and others and their views of equity outcomes and using government in that direction took over. But at every step, these are atheists and humanists who reject God and believe they can be the decider of man's fate. And through schooling or through government control, they want to pull the levers. So it sounds simplistic, but the more research you do, you realize underlying it, they're rejecting the biblical narrative. I agree with every single word you said. Just earlier in my show, I was noting because last week, and I'll let you know as soon as it's up, you'll find this fascinating. I debated of, of all things a rabbi, and I say of all things because I wouldn't have expected an orthodox rabbi to take this position, but uh, the subject of the debate was, uh, are humans innately good? I said no, he <laughs> said yes, and my my contention is that that question is the second most important in life. The first is, is there a God? The second is, are humans innately good? So I am completely on board with you. I, I completely agree that it is ultimately a religious battle. Uh, whether these people were atheists or not, either it's a loathing of traditional Judeo-Christian values and mm -hmm. specifically of Christianity, and I say this as a committed Jew, that, that, is, that is the last obstacle to the undoing of this country. And that's why I worry about the Christian community. Will it stay strong? You have any thoughts on that? Yes, I do. First of all, that's why the progressives targeted God first. Their early Gary plan and other schemes of Dewey created new schools that had pullout periods so that parents wouldn't be too outraged because you still did religion, but it was off-site. And then they debated it and brought it to New York City. It was always about pushing God out of the classroom. They knew that from the beginning. I'm actually... Um, Let's, let me say this. 1970s was the darkest uh, place for Christian education in America because classical Christian education had been completely buried. Now, we're talking about the type of education our founders would have received, steeped in history and the great books, uh, uh, Latin, Greek. Uh, they understood the ancient text and the big ideas and grappled with them through their education. That, is, that had been buried in 1970 but to the point, at least in K-12, through 12, where it didn't exist. There's a classical Christian education movement that's grown since then. It's up to 400, almost 500 brick-and-mortar schools across America. Uh, it's got a, hundreds of thousands in online, um, like much like what you do, co-ed co or co-op uh, homeschooling options. It's going to create a generation of young men and women who are at least grappling with the big ideas, who understand that we live in a kingdom. Uh, that it's not just right. school with a little bit of God. All right, let me, let me remind everybody, I want everybody to read it. Battle for the American Mind, Pete Hegseth. It's up at DennisPrager.com. What should parents do is my next question. Pete Hegseth is a serious thinker and a, 
a major figure in uh, cable news, with co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend, Battle for the American Mind, Uprooting a Century of Miseducation. What has been done, everybody knows, well, not everybody, unfortunately. A lot of people know what's happened through the universities. This is about K-12. to it's uh it you I, I I even your subtitle is important. Uprooting a century of miseducation. People don't know how long ago this began. It's another value in reading your book. Again, the battle battle not the battle for the American mind. It's up at DennisPrager.com. So I said I would ask you because I am asked this. Any time the subject arises, by callers, even people stopping me at airports, what do I do? What do you recommend to people knowing the corruption of our schools? What should they do? Pull your kids and grandkids out. Pull them out of government schools. Okay, one minute. Pete Hegseth, I think I could spend four hours asking you questions and not find an area in which we disagree. <laughs> well, that's a compliment to me because I've been listening to you for a long time, so I appreciate that very much. <laughs> Thank uh, you. That, that means a lot. Uh, it, but but we're all students of yours and others who came before us who helped wake us up to the reality of our moment. And I try to avoid momentism. Uh, ours is the most urgent. But when you consider the history and understand what's been done and the full control of the educational industrial complex of the left wing machine driven by atheists and Marxists and what's in a textbook in your kid's school, regardless of who you elect to the school board, you should be running out of there because you're running out of Democrat camp. Uh, and that's to put it kindly. And it, Democrat camp. I love, I love the Demo- term. Camp Democrat. It is. Yes. Where camp do you send Democrat. your kid? Oh, I, I send my kid to a uh, 10-month-a-year camp. That's what that's it right. is. That's it's what it Democrat is. Camp. And yep. then you hope to deprogram it on Sunday morning mm-hmm. or on Saturday right. uh, and, and then over the evening meal. And you're not going to. In fact, early progressives wrote about that. They wrote, what hope do the theists have with their Sunday school versus our secular 40 hours of instruction each week? They knew that once they cornered the market. So I, I know it's difficult. I'll use another word of the left, implicit bias. We all have our own biases toward public education or the warm glow of if it was good enough for us, then it's good enough for our kids. Or I know the principal or I know a teacher who's a who's a Christian or a patriot. And yeah, my school district's not that bad. Or I pay the property taxes or I really want them to play sports. Those are all things that all of us have said at some point. But if you actually look at the only legacy you can leave, it is whether or not you left your kids and grandkids an opportunity to fight for their republic. And right now we're outsourcing that to people who are, have views antithetical to ours with no real solution to go up against it. And, and that's why, as a military person, when I looked at the scope of the problem with my co-author, David Goodman, by the way, he runs the Association of Classical Christian Schools, we said the best tactic we can use right now is tactical retreat. It's tactical retreat that's into a great term. A insurgency. That- it's a tactical retreat to regroup. And, and then what's the war of the weak against the strong? It's insurgency. And so we're in phase one. Mao wrote about insurgency. I studied it and I taught it in Afghanistan. We're in phase one. We're regrouping. We're identifying allies. We are building schools and building networks and creating an alternate ecosystem in which truth can flourish. Real liberal arts education can happen. Only then 
we have a hope of creating a crop of young people who understand where our rights, where our, where truth comes from. Then we can begin our comeback. But hoping we're going to protest at school boards, I, I liken it in the book, Dennis, to uh, charging a machine gun nest, a fortified machine gun nest with Nerf guns. Uh, we're we're, we're going to we salute your efforts, but you're all going to die. Uh, it's it's not going to work. It might feel good. My mom protested at school boards in the 1990s in a public school system. She pulled me out of certain things, but nothing changed at that middle school and high school. It's time to regroup and then politically prioritize education as conservatives as issue number one, whereas it's always been a secondary or third tier issue for us. Uh, we're, we're winning wars, fighting wars and fighting for the economy while the left burrows into the education system and now they control it all. What is the, I don't have an answer to this. Uh, sometimes, obviously, anyone who interviews has an answer that they have. I don't have an answer to this. What is the average parent in America who has traditional American Judeo-Christian values think when they keep their kid in a regular private or public school? Do they think like, I guess, any one of us who flies regularly you know, the odds are overwhelming that I won't get into a crash. The odds are overwhelming my child will not be ruined by this school. Is that their mindset? It is a question I have grappled with throughout this entire project because I, you know, in my peer group, both from where I grew up and where I live now, there's lots of wonderful, patriotic, conservatively inclined, but but not really political people who would agree with everything that we're saying, but still send their kids to the local public school. I think it's the whole, everything will be just fine. You know, we're good parents. We've got good yeah, kids. So that's what the it teachers is. Teachers are nice. Right. My pilot and, is and a good then, pilot. We'll be fine. That's it. And it is, and, and then you can't, you can't minimize the mountain of excuses, some legit and some not of, you know, I pay the property taxes, I moved to this zip code, um, you know, I paid for the levy, this is what we're going to do, it was good enough for me, it's going to be good enough for them. And and that's why we hope this book is a wake up call. Some people can't move, can't change either. I get it. Finances are a real challenge. Life situations are a real challenge. But like anything else, if you want to make it happen, you can yes, with enough all, these people who that say important. that they can't do it for financial reasons should talk to parents whose kids uh, were estranged from the parents because of the schools. The book is Battle for the American Mind. Pete Hexeth will be back. The Dennis Prager Show. Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here. Pete Hexeth of Fox News, Fox and Friends Weekend, number one cable morning show. And deservedly so. Pete Hegseth has written a very serious book. I, I want to, why did I say serious? I want you to know, first of all, I love the word serious. But secondly, because you might think that having a popular show would mean that one of the hosts would not, in fact, be involved in such a serious endeavor as writing about what has happened to education, K-12 specifically in America in the last hundred years. But in fact, it's an extremely serious book. You will understand how deep the roots are. People don't know that. And uh, Pete Hegseth and uh, David Goodwin do. The book is Battle for the American Mind. It's already number one on Amazon, which is a big deal, folks, 
because, as I said earlier, uh, the uh, the Amazon list is every single book published, fiction, nonfiction, etc. By the way, you'll get a kick out of this, Pete. So, <laughs> one of my one of my truly favorite achievements uh, is that my, I don't know if you know, but I'm I'm writing a five volume commentary on the first five books of the Bible called the Rational wow. Bible. So uh, Genesis and Exodus are out. Deuteronomy is coming out in in October next year. Numbers then fi- finally Leviticus. So it, it's a major, major work. Obviously, it's very difficult. And uh, to my utter shock, I don't think you're shocked about how successful your book is. I was shocked. So the first volume that came out was Exodus, and it was number two on Amazon. Here is what you will really enjoy. Number one was a book about a gay rabbit. (laughs) So there was a time in American history when the one and two books in America were about a gay rabbit and a commentary on the book of Exodus. Uh, That sounds about right. Yes. Doesn't it? Yes. It summarizes the time in which we live. (laughs) And, And one suspects it was not a crossover of readers. No, <laughs> fundamentally serious and fundamentally lunatic. <laughs> yes, that is. Uh, yeah. And mine, by the way, has been crisscrossing with a uh, sort of a chiclet TikTok novel from uh, 2016. TikTok is, you know, they, it'll, something will go viral on TikTok these days. And it's a love story, scurned uh, fiction book that keeps it's been out for six years, but it's gotten a new bump because of uh, TikTok influencers. So that's what you never know what you're up against. You never know. That is exactly right. Anyway, I was quite happy with number two for a commentary Absolutely. Uh, on, on the Bible. Anyway, Battle for the American Mind it is. And I asked uh, Pete uh, the last segment, what should parents do? And as I, uh, I did not know what he would say, I, I give you my word, but to, to the word, it was what I have been begging people, uh, and that is take your kids out of uh, most schools. I, I want to deal with another aspect of schools, and I don't know if you cover it in the book, because I'm not uh, done with it, I just, I just really got it, but I, I will read every word of it, and that is Christian schools. Because even there, and Jewish schools, which I know better, uh, even there now, you don't know what you're sending your kid to. Well, very much you don't. In fact, David Goodwin did a great job, and we both worked together on what happened inside the Christian movement once it abdicated its education responsibility. I will say the Catholic schools is the one place where they remain committed to education as part of the, of the, the, uh, the spiritual life of the church uh, what happened in Christianity is it split. It split in, about the time the progressives were going to work in the in the classrooms, and one half of it went in a social justice route, effectively enabling the progressives and supporting their sort of more humanistic causes, and the other one became more fundamentalist, and it became much more about the saving of souls, which is a great task. But if you're only interested in saving souls, you ignore the tilling of the soil of the kingdom that exists here on earth and education became a secondary interest or component of those more evangelical churches. That's around the time that the concept of Sunday school came about. So Sunday school hasn't been around forever. It used to be the church was the school and the community all in one. 
Sunday school was a product of the church giving up the educational side of the spectrum, at least on the evangelical or Protestant side, and and saying, instead, we're going to just do it on Sundays after the church service or while the church service is going on, and we're going to hand the function of education over to the newly formed public schools, which for now reflect our values, and therefore that's okay. And over time, that split and chasm just widened and widened and widened. And I, I went, I grew up in a, a a very strong evangelical church in the state of Minnesota. It's grown to be a, a huge church there, and and I think it does great work, but it does almost no work on the educational side. All right, so all right, hold on there. The that, that, I, I want to develop. Minnesota. Yes, I need to develop this theme with you. Battle for the American Mind. It is up at DennisPrager.com. Uprooting the century of miseducation. Pete Hexeth, my guest. And he's written it with David Goodwin. I want to remind you of a product that I strongly commend to your attention. Should you have tingling and uh, numbness in your feet or hands, it's called Nerve Renew. It's a, it's a lousy condition. So for some people, it's debilitating. It was never truly debilitating for me, but I've had it much of my life in my feet. I, I went and got specially made inserts for my shoe. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com.